0: 531. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Well, I wanted to thank you again. Um, i gone a little more this year than normal because uh, I've been able to participate in this Leadership Tennessee uh, retreat, and we go to different cities six times uh, and basically look at how they seek the peace of the city. Last weekend, we were in Memphis, we started off in the Civil Rights Museum, which is extremely uh, well done and powerful. Uh, We looked at a charter school, and we spent the afternoon talking about health care, and poverty. So these have been very interesting uh, times, so thanks for letting me do that. And uh, I I know that you loved Brother Darrell. I certainly enjoyed hearing him last week. We've talked several times or texted several times, and I just look forward to the relationship deepening between uh, our churches. As Jesse has said, uh, this is the the last uh, week of the year. Uh, Next week, we start uh, Advent, which uh, I always look forward to. Uh, we will pick the Sermon on the Mount back up later in 2015. We'll have a series beginning in January about uh, the Nicene Creed, and the mere Christianity of the Nicene Creed, and then what uh, what we do as a community on, on other important doctrinal issues when we uh, don't quite see it the same way. Uh, that will be coming, and then we'll return to uh, Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Well, one of the things that... We've been learning about in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been going through it very slowly, is that really the purpose of Advent, the meaning of Advent, is that Christ came to, to rescue us, to save a people for us, to form a people for us, for him. And, and one of the things that he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about what's distinctive about this people. Uh, what, what should the world see? He calls the people a, a, a light to the world. But what should the world see? when the world looks at the people of God, the people we've been talking about of the New Covenant. And, and he, he starts off with the Beatitudes, the virtues, the, the heart values of the people of God. And then he talks about uh, how he's come to deepen the law, not to change it. And he's going through six different Old Testament laws. So we've looked at uh, anger, we've looked at lust, and now he's going to look at a law about divorce and remarriage. And what's interesting about this is is, is the Lord picks six different Old Testament laws to talk about when he's talking about how his people are to witness for him in the world, and two of them have to do with marriage. Uh, The last one was on adultery, protecting the marriage, and then this one is on divorce and remarriage. So so marriage for the Lord is, is a very important part of how we as the people of God witness to the love of God. When, uh, when a man and a woman marry and commit to one another for life, and they press into the hard things, and, and they stay faithful to their covenant promises, they are witnessing to the sacrificial love that Christ has for the church. It's very, very important. Well, most of the people in the ancient world did not see marriage as a sacrificial, lifelong, intimate, loving union. Matter of fact, for the Greeks... Uh, Men were just expected to have mistresses. Uh, One Greek writer put it like this. He said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of cohabitation, and we have wives for having children. And they just flat out acknowledged that. Um, Roman marriages in Jesus' day were, were seen as an unfortunate necessity. The Romans had a saying Quote, marriage only brings two happy days, the day when the husband first clasps his wife to his breast and the day when he lays her in the tomb. So there's a Valentine's Day uh, uh, thing for you. The Roman poet Marshall mentions a woman who had ten husbands. Juvenal mentions someone who had eight divorces in five years. So the idea of marriage as this wonderful gift, this, this sacred journey, this adventure, this intimate union that we fight for, was not prevalent at all in the ancient world. Now, the Jews theoretically had a view of marriage like that. It um, began in Genesis 1. Uh, Jesus talks about the, the man and the woman being made in the image of God. And then he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And they shall become one flesh. So one of the first things the Lord does in the creation of the world is create marriage. He says that this man and this woman are to come together. They're to be one flesh. Uh, The the older translations have to cleave. Uh, That word means to adhere to firmly, loyally, unswervingly. Uh, The Hebrew word means to keep close to your heart. The Greek word means... To, to glue together. So, so there's this idea that from the beginning, God, God's plan is to bring a man and a woman together, to, to glue them together in a way that they are a one flesh union. And it's such a beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to be. It's not just a civil contract. It's not just a social arrangement. It's this intimate, 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 Union. It's, it's like the Trinity, no surprise. We're both made in the image of God. When two people made in the image of God come together, what do they do? They reflect the image of God. And so you have this glorious vision of marriage in the very first pages of the Bible as this uh, lifelong, loving, faithful, committed, connected union of uh, a man and a woman. But God knew that it would be hard. Uh, so he tells his prophet Hosea to... To, to marry Gomer, a prostitute. And, and he says that that marriage will, will be a symbol of God's love for his, his unfaithful people. Hosea 3.1. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. So God knows it's hard to be faithful in a marriage. He he knows it's hard to to keep your vows. And and, and He says, Hosea, I want you to model for all time this self-sacrificial love. I'm going to ask you to love a woman who doesn't love you back, who's unfaithful to you. You love her, and that's a picture of what married love is to be. And even the prophet Malachi goes so far as to say that God hates divorce. Many years later, the Apostle Paul goes one step farther. He says in Ephesians chapter 5 that the sacrificial love of a long-term marriage is a picture of Christ's love for us. Well, all of that was somehow in the theology theology of the people of God, but it was not working out that way in practice. Uh, in, In the first century, sadly, tragically, divorces were... Very, very common, very easy to uh, procure uh, by uh, the Jewish man in the marriage. And a lot of this was built on a, a, a misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 24 one, And that's a, a, a text on divorce or remarriage where uh, Moses essentially says that if there's something uh, found displeasing or indecent in the woman, that the husband can divorce her. And, and what had happened is, is, is that over time... Uh, men were divorcing their wives for any reason at all the woman had no rights no protection what that meant in that culture is that she was thrust alone out into the street and 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 often that meant prostitution was the only way she could uh care for herself i read today uh uh, people divorcing their wives because uh, they put too much salt on the food because they did not wear head coverings uh in public because they the man didn't find them attractive anymore it was It was just horrific what was going on in Jesus' day. And so Jesus responds by going back to God's ideal plan for the marriage. He, of course, acknowledges the passage in Deuteronomy 24, but he says, But I say that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So God's will for marriage, stated right there, it's that a husband and a wife commit to sacrificially love each other for a lifetime. And that's one of the ways that we make God's love known to the world. I read a little essay today about marriage in a post-Christian culture. And the author was was talking about how our culture is is moving so far away from traditional views of of marriage. Uh, And and he goes on to say this. He says, it could be that in time, Christian marriage seen as a sacrament and lived as if it were were a mystery of grace will become nearly as radical a choice as monasticism, a countercultural thing. Maybe it is already understood properly. I thought that was so powerful that what he's saying today is maybe one of the most radical things you can do to witness for Christ in a post-Christian culture is is keep your vows, is to keep fighting for your marriage, is to keep pushing towards that one flesh union that God desires. I I read a beautiful wedding sermon, sermon this morning. I wanted to quote a couple lines from it. The love of God continues to be visible, not only through the telling of the story of how God sent his son for us, but also through the ongoing life of the community of faith that lives that story. John put it this way, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God dwells among us and love is perfected among us. What does all this have to do with marriage? Just this. The love that binds man and woman in Christian marriage is not just warm spring evenings and roses, not the dizzy fantasy of fairy tale romance. The love that binds man and woman in Christian marriage is the love of the cross. That means, Tim and Sue, that your marriage is not just an arrangement that will last as long as the rush of mutual joy lasts. Your marriage is a covenant which will endure for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. Certainly in marriage there is joy, certainly there is companionship and comfort, but marriage in Christ can never be a tentative coupling that lasts only as long as the good times roll. The joy of marriage in Christ endures all pain, because the love that binds you in Christ is rooted deeply in the love of God. That's God's vision for marriage. That's Christ's vision for marriage. A one-flesh, intimate union that we fight for our whole lives through disappointment, through disillusionment, through everything else that the enemy can throw at us. That's God's vision for marriage. And if you've not been married long, the people that have will tell you there will come a time when you will think it's over. It's a hard, 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 hard thing to do to be married faithfully and intimately and lovingly your whole life. There will come a time when you'll be so hurt you will wonder, how on earth can I keep doing this? And God's vision is that you do. Now, what about the exception clause? Uh, that's something that we need to talk about. It's an important part of the discussion on divorce and remarriage. Uh, Are there times when divorce is permissible? Are there certain circumstances when a person has a right to end their marriage? Um, Very difficult question. You probably know that different uh, Christian teachers in the history of the church have interpreted this differently. Uh, I'll do my best to explain how I understand it. I understand that, that others see it differently there are five different New Testament passages that deal with divorce and remarriage. Five of them. In Mark 10, there is no exception clause. In other words, Jesus simply says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. In Mark, there is no divorce, no remarriage, not for any reason at all. In Luke 16 there is no exception clause. No divorce, no remarriage, not even for adultery. In Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, there is one exception. No divorce, no remarriage, except for adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7... Paul gives a second exception. He says, if an unbelieving partner deserts the marriage, the remaining partner is free to divorce and remarry. And he says something interesting at the beginning. He says, uh, this is I and not the Lord saying this. Which is puzzling (laughs) to know what he means. But what I think he means is that he is applying the principle of God's vision for marriage to the settings that he finds the church of Corinth in. Now, five inspired texts, all equally the Word of God, all equally authoritative. Two of them offer no exception clauses. Two of them provide exception clauses. One of them provides exception for desertion. Now, what do you do when you're reading the Bible and you've got five texts that seem to say something slightly different? Well, you have two options. One option is to say, uh, see, the Bible is not inspired. The Bible contradicts itself. We can't trust it. There are errors. I don't think that is the best option. I don't think it makes sense. I think it's reading the Bible the wrong way. Another option is to say, the early church put all these different texts together in the Bible for one re- for a reason. The early church wasn't stupid. They could read. They knew there were differences in these texts, and yet they believed the whole Bible was inspired. They heard God speaking through the many different witnesses of the text. So we can too. Maybe the Bible is more like a symphony of notes all making a beautiful song than just one note played over and over again. So what I think you have in the New Testament is God's inspired authoritative record of how the Holy Spirit guided the early church in handling divorce in their communities. The principle is this. God's vision is for a one-flesh intimate loving union faithfully kept through sacrificial love for your entire life that's the vision the texts also show how the early church dealt with the gap between god's ideal and our sin we fail we commit adultery we walk away and when that tragedy happens there is grace Now, I'd like to end, uh, and don't get your hopes up, I'm not that close to ending. Um, I'd like to move to three different words of application. Uh, The first word is for our singles. What does this text say to our singles? First, I, I, I think it says, don't fear marriage. You know, it's interesting, if, if you look later in Matthew 19, Jesus gives a little mini-sermon on marriage, and he goes back to uh, Genesis and about the lifelong commitment, and the disciples, who are all bachelors, um, uh, say, uh, whoa, if that's, uh, if that's what marriage is, who would want to do it? I mean, that's really in there. <laughs> the disciples are sort of freaked out by, by this high-commitment approach to marriage. And I think a lot of singles are uh, today as as well. But Jesus' vision of marriage should give us hope, not terrifies us. There are a lot of good reasons to be single. Half the adults in America today are single. There's a lot of good reasons to be single. One of them is not fear, fear of marriage. That's not a good reason. Because God gave us the gift of marriage because some of his children needed to become sanctified. It is a seminary for the soul. It's not the only seminary for the soul. It is a primary seminary for the soul where you learn about your sin. You learn about forgiveness. You learn about redemption. You learn about hope. You learn about pressing through disillusion and disappointment in relationships. God gave his people, some of his people, the gift of marriage to do do that. It's a good thing. It's hard, but it's a good thing. I've been talking with a with a friend once, and, 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 I, and I'm going to blur a couple conversations together because I've had this conversation so many times. And essentially what he said is, I've watched my parents struggle. They had a bad marriage. The people I know that are married are already cheating on their wives. What I'm going to do is uh, just date endlessly. I'm just going to kind of stay... Kind of stay in this as long as it seems like it's meeting both our needs and then we'll cut our losses and move on. Uh, and I've had that conversation many, many, many different times. Now, why, why not? Why, why not just date and hang out and, and not get all entangled in marriage? Why get married? Well, I think it's good for your soul. You're leaving something on the table, and I'm only speaking to those who are called to marriage. I realize everyone isn't. But if God has brought you someone into your life to marry and you're not accepting that gift, when you're hedging your bets, when your greatest goal in life is protecting yourself from pain, when your top relational goal is avoiding risk, you are avoiding growth as a human being. And your 30s turn into your 40s and then into your 50s, and all you have is a series of broken relationships, and you never learn how to endure disappointment and delusionment and press into the new frontier of grace and acceptance and forgiveness. You never learn it. Marriage isn't for everyone. I know that. God doesn't need marriage to sanctify a person. He can do that in a million different ways. But too many of us avoid marriage because... We're afraid. We're terrified of the commitment. That's not a good reason not to do this. And frankly, as kind of an aside, I thank God for some Internet dating sites. I do. I do. Because I believe marriage is a good thing. And I think it's awfully hard in our culture to find a spouse. Once you get out of college, it's very, very hard. Very hard. And if you're a Christian who's trying to walk with the Lord and you're trying to find someone who shares that vision, it gets even, even harder. So there are a lot of things I don't like about the Internet. I think uh, certain Christian dating services are, are a godly gift, and you should not feel shame if you use that technology to pursue a mate. A word for married people from Jesus' teaching on divorce. Fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. In the book of Malachi, uh, there's this verse that goes like this. If we could put this up here, this is... Uh, Translated from the Living Bible, Uh, God says to the prophet, The Lord has seen your treachery in divorcing your wives, who have been faithful to you through the years, the companions you promised to care for and keep. You were united to your wife by the Lord. In God's uh, plan, you were married. The two of you became one person in his sight. Therefore, guard your passions. Keep faith with the wife of your youth. This is one of the, the characteristics that should mark us as, as the people of God. I was thinking about a friend of mine. I'll call him Brian. Um, about ten years ago, Brian had gotten into to a marriage when he was very young, like many of us. And he was into it pretty far, and it was just not working out. It was really bad, and all they could do was fight. It seemed like everything they tried, it just kind of disintegrated, and uh, you could just see both of them sinking into this abyss. And, and finally, uh, Brian separated from his wife and his children. It was around Christmas time. I remember sitting in his hotel room that Christmas, and just, just, it was a very painful time for him. And I think all of us that were walking with Brian at that time thought that his marriage was over. As a matter of fact, to be honest, it was so painful and so bad. I think a lot of us thought, "Well, this is good. Uh, this one's died. Uh, he deserves better. Maybe it's time to cut our losses. She deserves better too." Well, he moved back in and decided he was going to fight for his marriage, and he got a couple of close friends around him, and she did too, and they asked for help and support. Uh, They really pressed in deep with some close friends. They they spent a lot of time with a gifted therapist. And one of the things that I noticed as uh, Brian started to go through this process, and Brian was never a bad guy at all. He was a very good guy. But one of the things that I noticed was when he made that decision to fight for his marriage, and frankly, when his friends stopped coming around and saying, you know, she really is, you know, we'd understand if you... When that happened, and it shifted, Brian started to see what he was doing wrong in the marriage. And he started to see how his relational sin was hurting her. And and I watched him just shatter. Just break. And And out of that brokenness... They started to heal. They don't have the world's greatest marriage now. But it's a lot better than it was. And they're fighting for it. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. When I look back on that, it demanded a lot of deep internal work on both their parts. But they also did it in community. I don't think they would have made it just by themselves. And, and this is something I want to say to us who are, who are married or thinking about getting married. You, you can't do marriage alone. And I know that's tricky because you don't want to embarrass your wife, you don't want to talk about your husband, and so to talk about a struggle that you're having in your marriage is sometimes you just feel like, well, I just can't go there. Uh, uh, beloved, we've got to go there. With a handful of people You've got to be able to talk about the problems in your sex life, the problems in the way you handle money, the problems in the way you deal with your in-laws and your children, the, the, the crushed dreams, the broken... You've got to have somewhere to talk about it. You've got to. I hope you have that. I know a lot of you have that. If you don't have it, um, gosh, let, let's, let's work with you on it. And, and and talk to me. We'll we'll find some folks. One of the things you could do is that you and your wife could just pray, God, raise up a couple of couples for us to connect with. You could buy uh, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. That's, a, I think, the best book I've ever read on marriage. Or Larry Crabb's Fully Alive or one book that you like. And you, you could just get together for dinner once a month during Lent, uh, once a week during Lent, and, and talk about the chapter and then talk about your marriages. That would be a good thing. That would be a really, really... Good thing. We've got to fight for a marriage. and and I know so often the thought is, well we I can't afford a sitter right now. I can't afford a night with my wife on a date. I can't afford the book. I get that. That may be a place where where your friends come in and and chip in uh, and support you. But I'll tell you this, I was talking with a divorced friend this week who is having a legal issue with her ex about custody, and it's going back into court, and she said, every text I make to my attorney to try to solve this costs me $75, every text. So, you can put your money in on the front end (laughs) to build your marriage, or you can put a ton more money in on the back end to tear it apart. Well, now, a word for our our friends who've been divorced. If the word for our, our single folks is don't fear marriage, and the word for our married folks is fight for your marriage, I think the word for our divorced folks is there is grace for you if you've failed in your marriage. And I really want us to be clear on this. Yes, divorce is sinful. By the way, you know who knows? that divorce is sinful more than anyone else? People who've been divorced. you know? You want to know who knows why God hates divorce? <laughs> People who've been divorced. It's brutal. But the hope of the gospel, isn't the hope of the gospel that when I sin and repent and turn to God that He forgives me and gives me new beginnings? Isn't that the whole hope of the gospel? Why would this sin be any different than the sin of anger or the sin of lust or the sin of taking false oaths? Wouldn't the hope of the gospel be that if you have failed in marriage and you have truly repented and and you've truly tried to do the reconciling that you could do and, and, and change what you need to change, that there would be grace and acceptance and freedom and hope and a new beginning. I think that's the hope of the gospel. Uh, I do marry divorced people. I don't marry all of them. Because if someone comes to me and they're divorced and we start doing premarital counseling and we start talking about where they are, and the first thing the guy says is, my wife was such a, and I'm looking for the right woman now. Well, then I'm not going to do the wedding. Because this is not a man who's repented over his sins in the marriage. This is a fool who's blaming it on his ex-wife. Now, let's be honest. Even in the worst marriage, both people contribute. There is no innocent party in any relationship unless you're Jesus Christ. We all contribute to sin in our marriage. and I, I, I understand it the way um, one writer puts it, if we could see this last cry, slide here. Um, For the church rigidly to refuse to solemnize the remarriage of a divorced person who has accepted God's forgiveness, who is sincerely penitent and sincerely desirous to order his or her life as nearly as possible to God's will, would seem to me to involve a denial of the reality of the forgiveness of sins and therefore the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Let's pray.